It's rewarding. At the end of the day, you're dog dead tired, you know, but you got a boat full of crawfish. I have a passion for it. My heart's in it. It's about providing a service and satisfying a customer, making a, making a, someone smile. That's Heath Leger at a crawfish farm in the backwaters of Louisiana, demonstrating the pride he clearly feels in his work, a pride that typifies many of the workers I've met in this southern U.S. state. I'm Daniel Dickinson, and for this special edition of our flagship podcast, The Lid Is On, I've been on the road, including a waterway or two in New Orleans and further afield, taking stock of what work means today in the world's biggest economy. I've met a voodoo priestess, a Catholic priest, an accordion maker, a Mardi Gras big chief, a big game taxidermist, and many more people who have sat down with me and enthusiastically explained how important work is to them. In this podcast, I'm going to take you inside a New Orleans restaurant and outside to a crawfish farm in rural Louisiana. A small flat-bottomed paddle boat with two men on board picks its way through a green and muddy trench planted with rice on a 120-acre farm in Scott towards the west of Louisiana. A single large and ribbed paddle which glides across the slippery bottom keeps the craft on track and as it lurches forward one of the men plants metal traps every 10 feet or so. Beneath the brackish water a crawfish small freshwater crustaceans which resemble lobsters, although they're somewhat smaller and black in colour. Before long, they'll be drawn into the cages, lured by scraps of fish. Back on solid ground, I meet Heath Leger, who works for Chez Francois Seafood, a family crawfish business set up by his father and now run by his brother. He explains to me how the pots work. This is a tripod trap. It's a trap that they used in, in ponds for farm-raised crawfish. The peg that comes out the bottom is for you to push in the ground. How many pounds can you can you catch in one of these? Oh, if the crawfish are running, man, y'all have three to six pounds in it maybe, you know? That's a lot of crawfish. You've set some test traps today. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've got here? Because we have some, some live uh, crawfish right in front of us. You have some that are just coming out from the ground. They, they haven't shedded. Their, their shells are really hard. There's not a whole lot of meat in them. They have to eat and, uh, and shed that shell so that they can grow. They've been underground, so they've just been dormant, not eating, just kind of just down there waiting for the water to come so that they can come back up. That's a nice big one. Yeah, yeah. It's um, about four yeah. inches long. See how dark that one is? That's one that's been in that mud a long, long time. Crawfish wasn't always a delicacy, and only people in the swamp ate it, says Heath. But now, 40 years after his dad first got into the business, it's a global billion-dollar industry. Louisiana produces more than 90% of all crawfish in the United States, and the industry makes more than $300 million annually, creating 7,000 direct and indirect jobs. That's according to the Louisiana Crawfish Promotion and Research Board. 
it's not an easy job, Heath Leger tells me, as he finishes his shift planting pots. Hey, nothing easy about this. What makes it so hard? Well, it's it, it's non-stop. You know, you're sitting in that boat, driving with your feet. You know, you're doing like five things at one time. You know, it's hot and mosquitoes, it's sweating and just messing with fish. It's just, it, it's it, it just it'll it'll chip away at you. It, it's rewarding. At the end of the day, you're dog dead tired, you know, but you got a boat full of crawfish. But it's not for everybody. You know, it's not for everybody. It takes a special kind of person to come out here and do this. If you don't like getting dirty, this is not for you. <laughs> I tell you that. I've seen myself up to my waist in mud already, quite a few times. But it's uh, it's God's country, you know. It's 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 outdoors. It's it's it's. I mean, where can you get this? I mean, you can't go to the to the movies and get this, man. It's just there's nothing like it, you know. And it's not just the outdoor life and a boat full of crawfish, which is rewarding. I have a passion for it, you know. It's uh, my heart's in it, you know. Um, it's about to me providing a service and satisfying a customer making someone smile you know to me that's what it that's where the payoff's at and do you think many people realize what goes into getting no. a getting a crawfish to their table <laughs> no not at all they have no idea most of them most of them oh there's the boss duty calls hold on y'all. hey As Heath Leger picks up a catch of crawfish, some 130 miles east of Scott, lunch service is coming to an end at the Italian-accented Red Gravy Cafe in the centre of New Orleans, a city which draws tourists to its celebrated restaurants from all over the world. The last orders of meatballs and shrimp and grits are being served to the hungry diners. But sadly, crawfish, which I really want to try, is not on the menu today. Chef and owner Roseanne Rostocker takes a seat at a table at the front of the cafe and is brought tea by a member of her staff. Like Heath Leger, she understands the importance of keeping customers happy. What we do back there is a labour of love, and if you don't love cooking, why do it? You You may as well just paint chalk on the sidewalks and do something that makes you happy. There are days when I don't want to do it and sometimes we wake up and the first thing out of my mouth is I don't want to play restaurant today and you just don't want to do it but the people that are coming in don't really care what my how I feel. They know they want their meatball and they know they want their omelet, they want their coffee, they want their pancakes, they want their sandwich and my job is to give it to them and as a result I get to pretty much do whatever I want. When I don't want to make this certain object anymore, I take it off the menu. I don't want to cook that anymore. And it's off the menu. So to me, this is freedom. I could work for somebody else and they could tell me what to do and I'd be miserable. Or I could say to myself, look, you put yourself in this situation. I didn't have to spend all my money and open a restaurant. I could have invested wisely and gotten a job. I don't like to work for people. And I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. So to me, this type of job, this is freedom. And I kind of feel like if I was a writer or a painter, I would feel the same way. You can do whatever you want. That freedom of being self-employed comes with potential downsides. The catering industry is a tough, competitive business with long hours. But Roseanne believes there'll always be a need for restaurants like Red Gravy. When it comes to the service industry... I think it's like the funeral homes. You're always going to need them. 
People are always going to die and people have to eat. Not everybody wants to concentrate on cooking. So I don't think there's a big fear of anything happening to restaurants. They could potentially become automated where maybe you don't need your service staff. But unless you want to go in the kitchen and get your dish and set your own table and pour your own drink, you need the service staff. The service industry, I don't think, is ever going to be in, in any danger. As if people have to eat, people are going to die. Those are the things that we never have to worry about. Both chef and crawfish farmer are working behind the scenes, playing significant but largely invisible roles, providing services to customers who they may never meet. These two American workers are part of a photography project called Dignity at Work, The American Experience, which was launched by the International Labour Organization, or ILO, on its 2019 centenary. The project is documenting the working life of people across the United States. The ILO, a specialised United Nations agency, focuses on advancing social justice and promoting decent work, not just in the US but globally. It's leading UN efforts to answer how technology, demographic shifts, globalisation and climate change will shape work in the future. Kevin Cassidy is the director of the ILO's office for the United States. We started back in July to meet with everyday workers, people in different professions, rising professions, fading professions, iconic, popular, emerging jobs. We wanted to look at a cross-section of people from corporate lawyers to technologists and surgeons to tattoo artists, farmers and uh, rodeo clowns. So just to really get a real cross-section of work in America today. So many different types of people. Do they have anything in common? What I've noticed is that everybody has said that they don't feel like it's work because they enjoy what they do. They've found not only their passion, but their gift. And this has really moved me to think about work in a very different way. They talk about not being a family, but being communities. Communities are people who come together to create something of value for the rest of society to enjoy. And this could be anything from a small business person who is running an advanced beauty college in Los Angeles, California, to someone who is a crawler hauler uh, looking at long-haul trucking here in Louisiana. So what are you trying to achieve by traveling across the country and documenting all these different experiences? The International Labor Organization turns 100 years old this year. We're the oldest institution in the UN system. Uh, we started the year with a report called The Future of Work, Creating a Brighter Future. And in that report, we make recommendations for, as we look forward over the horizon, what would the world of work look like? And some of the voices we had heard were concerned that algorithms and technology were going to displace people and that people would become the digital day workers, that they would not have professions for themselves. So... In looking at this and looking at the workers around us, we realize that people uh, will always be involved in work. Work is about the nexus between the social and the economic. People and the interaction of people is what generates economy. Algorithms and robots do not buy goods or services. So people will always be a part of that work. So we wanted to show the humanity of that. We wanted to show the quiet dignity that people bring to their job and their activities every day. And we also wanted to uncover the invisible, 
No one cares about the uh, engine mechanic uh, for a jet engine as long as the plane stays in the air. No one cares if the food um, is great unless, of course, the food is tainted. There are millions of people out there doing jobs that we don't even know that they're there. We pass them by, bus drivers, uh, subway uh, conductors, uh, people who are farming our food, people who are uh, developing creative things for us, developing software to improve our lives. And we never even know that these people exist. So we want to make the invisible visible. So here in Louisiana, you met a crawfish uh, farmer why is it important that people understand what that man does on a daily basis? I've worked in development for 35 years, and most of my work has been overseas in the uh, what we would call the developing world or the emerging economies. And as the director for this office in the United States, I wanted to give people a picture of what work in the U.S. was. I don't know if a lot of people actually know the different professions that exist here, but a crawfish farmer is similar to a fisherman, uh, whether that person is in Malaysia or Indonesia or in Thailand. Um, there are people who do the same type of jobs here in the States that people do overseas. They suffer the same elements of being out on the water, of trying to ca uh, catch uh, the fish or raise the crawfish or to trap the lobsters to provide to people uh, that, again, is very similar in action but across the world. So there, there is a connection between all these people because everyone that I have spoken to, almost without fail, have said, I'm trying to develop a quality product and to deliver that to people. And when it makes them happy and I can provide a living, not only for myself, but for those around me, the people who work for me, the people who depend upon my catch or the crops that I raise, that they are actually responsible for creating jobs and everybody wants to have a job that will give them fulfillment that will give them identity and also be able to very basically put a roof over their head provide education for their children and provide for a happy life for themselves and their communities so we're really talking about universal experiences and universal values absolutely work connects us to reality and that reality, whether you are in Botswana or Lesotho, or whether you're in Argentina or in Mexico, or you are in New Mexico, California, Washington State, there is a connection between all of us. We are in this web of our international globalized economy. And again, the, the, the benefit from my position is that the ILO was set into motion at a time when this current economic system was one of many options. And as we reflect back on these hundred years, we realize that we are all connected in this globalized economy, but we are all connected as well to as people and families and communities. So for me, it has been an, an amazing journey that has changed my mind about how I think and speak and, uh, and advise about work today. So it's changed your mind. Is that because you've been surprised by the interactions you've had with people you've met? I have, and, and in small ways. It, it's, you know, it's not big epiphanies. So, for example, I spoke to someone, and, you know, often, you know, the word when we talk about when we like the job we do, you know, that we're a part of a family. 
And uh, the artistic director in the L.A. Opera said, you know, we're not a family. We're a community that comes together with skills and talents to create something of value for the society around us for their enjoyment and benefit. I spoke to a small entrepreneur uh, who told me when he got into uh, creating his own business, he thought it was because he wanted to be his own boss. And the one thing that he realized after 10 years was that when he became a businessman and ran his own business, everybody became his boss. When I spoke to a woman who was the fashion editor for a very well-known magazine, that this was her passion, but it was not her gift. And she shifted her career to bring the gift out because with her gift, she was able to sustain her enjoyment of the work that she did. And so many times today we see people who don't enjoy what they do. That impacts upon productivity, that impacts upon economic growth, that you know impacts upon the individual's happiness in the workplace. So if people are passionate and and have a gift for doing something, and they bring that to bear, the economy increases because you have greater productivity, you have greater deliverables. And this is important not only to the employer, but also to the employee. You've been asking these working people whether they're worried about advances in technology, robots that may replace them, take their jobs. What's been their reaction? I think overall what I've heard is that they won't, that Technology is there, but technology has always been there, whether it is from a paddle to a sail or a uh, plow to a tractor. Today, you know, we've moved beyond the technology that has helped us do the physical work. We are now confronted by the digital technology that is, and the uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning that is coming out to help us do the analytical and the calculations that increase the activities around the world economically and socially. So when I spoke to, for example, the surgeon in the robotics laboratory in the Cleveland Clinic, he says that, you know, this technology helps me do better work and reduces the discomfort and the scarring, reduces hospitalization, and it is a better way of helping people. So they feel that the technology, yes, it will be there, and we will use that technology, and we will learn how to use that technology to improve humankind. So people are not fearful, by and large, from my experiences about the technology, but they do understand that they need the learning, the lifelong learning that will make the technology serve humankind. This is just a small, albeit very diverse, section of the American workforce. Have you found people to be basically optimistic about their working future? Absolutely. And not only their working future, but the future of their children. I think what happens is that if we stand at one moment in time, you know, maybe we might see things going too fast for us. And and this happens when people retire or when people are in isolated communities and so. But I think that the people that we have been speaking to have been connected to the economy, connected to the community, and they have a sense of what is necessary for them. So they have been understanding how the world has been changing, what we need to do, and have been preparing not only themselves, but their children for those changes. And the thing that I'm seeing more and more of now is that people believe in their craft. They believe in their art. They believe in their skills and their talents. And that is something that is really unshakable in a lot of people. Now, some may start on a path and they may change along the way. There are no straight lines in life. But by and large, people have been very positive to meet these challenges, not only with great gusto, but with anticipation of a better life for their children as well.
Back at the crawfish farm in Scott, Heath Léger says he hopes the legacy created by his father will carry on for generations, adding that if his children want to go into the business, they could take it to the next level. That means spending more time in the office building the business and less time knee-deep in mud like their father. This is Daniel Dickinson in Louisiana for The Lid Is On. This podcast and our new podcast, Uncomplicated, which demystifies the work of the UN, are now available on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Thanks for listening.